Amen. Thank you, John. On most Saturdays in the Buto home, we do something that my kids affectionately call Dadder Day. And it's a special time when uh, dad takes the kids out for breakfast and we spend time together. And it accomplishes three important things. First, it gives my lovely wife a, a break. As much as she loves uh, being with our kids, it gives her an opportunity to not be with our kids, which moms, I know that's sometimes helpful for you. Uh, it gives me a wonderful time to be with our children, which is also wonderful. Uh, and third, uh, it reminds me to be very grateful for Holly uh, the rest of the week. <laughs> Uh, yesterday, we were together, and uh, the kids and I went to Wendy's drive through and uh, then went and found a, a park bench somewhere where we could enjoy breakfast together. And as we're eating, we noticed a bird's nest near where we were sitting. And uh, as the kids began to look up at the bird's nest, they noticed there's... Oh, sorry, I'll stay over here. Uh, they noticed that there's a little baby bird in the bird's nest. And I don't know, I still don't understand why my children thought the baby bird looked cute. Uh, if you've ever Googled images of baby birds, you know they don't look cute. That's another story. Uh, but the kids are looking and kind of fawning over this baby bird in the nest. And they say, Daddy, please, can we bring the baby bird home? Can we get the nest down and bring the baby bird and let it be our baby bird? We'll take care of the baby bird. And I, you know, I knew the answer had to be no, but I had to think of how best to convince them this was a bad idea. So I said, you know how mommy birds feed their babies? No, we don't know how mommy birds feed their babies. Well, the mommy bird actually goes and finds the worm, you know, and, and chews up the worm and digests it a little bit and then spits it out or throws it up into the mouth of the baby. So if you want the baby bird, that's what you have to do. <laughs> Quickly, they changed their minds and said they didn't want to do that. Now, some of you might come up to me after the service, and you might say, well, yeah, but you could just blend it up or something and then just pour it into the bird's mouth. You've totally missed the point of that entire thing. The whole idea was to get them to see the cost of caring for a baby bird is so astronomically high, I won't want to do it, Right? The whole idea is that some things are, are fun and exciting and interesting until you recognize the high cost you have to pay to do it, and then you don't want to do it anymore. There's a similar dynamic happening in our story this morning in Matthew's gospel. If you're not already there, go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, last week, I told you as we began in Matthew chapter 8, that in these two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, just kind of a bird's eye view of these chapters, there's three sets of three miracle stories in these two chapters. And so Matthew's trying to show us in these two chapters the authority, the power of Jesus. This Jesus, as the old hymn says, has wonder-working power. But Matthew wants to do more than merely get you to ooh and awe ah at the power of Jesus. Matthew wants you to do what he did. Matthew wants you to follow Jesus. 
And so in between each set of miracle stories, there's kind of a little parenthetical story where Matthew talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that's where we are this morning. We're in kind of an an interruption between the sets of miracle stories where Matthew shows us, gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Our story begins with a great crowd of people around Jesus. Now, if you were with us last week, that would make sense if you remember where we left off in Matthew 8, verse 17. Jesus is in the town of Capernaum, and he's healing everybody. People are bringing the disease, the demon-possessed to Jesus, and everybody is getting healed. So naturally, a massive crowd begins to form around Jesus in Capernaum. Now, you would think that Jesus, if he were like one of us, would kind of camp out there for a little bit. Let's capitalize on the crowd. Let's capitalize on this success. We're a numbers-driven culture, aren't we? we? We often form our political opinions based on polling data. Our viewing habits are influenced by box numbers or, or streaming numbers. Even our feelings of value and self-worth are often connected to the number of likes or shares that we get on social media. But Jesus is different. Jesus is far more interested in absolute allegiance from a few followers than massive adoration from a large crowd. So instead of striking while the iron is hot, Jesus does the unthinkable. He says to his disciples, Load up the boat, it's time to leave. Just picture that for a second. Massive crowds lining up to see Jesus. Maybe perhaps people that have traveled from sister towns, other villages that have come all the way to see Jesus. Massive crowds of people, and Jesus says, get the boat ready, we're leaving. And as they're preparing the boat to cross To the other side of the Sea of Galilee, two would-be disciples approach Jesus. Perhaps they want to get in the boat and go with him and join him in his travels. And in Jesus' response to both men, Jesus reveals the, the high cost of following him. It's as if Jesus is saying, kids, you think this is going to be fun? Let me tell you what's going to happen if you choose to follow me. What Jesus demands from these followers, who would be followers, is absolute allegiance. Now, it's interesting, as we'll see in the story in just a moment, Matthew doesn't record for us how either man responds. He doesn't tell us what they say to Jesus when he gives them the, the high cost of following him. It's almost as if for Matthew, he wants us to finish the story. It's almost as if more important than what these men did is what you and I will do. There are some perhaps in this room this morning who have not given their absolute allegiance to Jesus Like the men in this story, you're willing to follow Jesus kind of, a little bit, but there's a line that you won't cross. 
There are many in this room that are true, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. You have given him your absolute allegiance, and yet, if you're honest, sometimes it waxes and wanes. Sometimes the intensity of your devotion is dim. My prayer and hope for you this morning is that you will be reminded that even though the cost to follow Jesus is incredibly high, the payoff is eternally worth it. What I want us to do this morning as we walk through this story together is ask ourselves two questions, two questions that that reflect the concerns of the two men in this story. Question number one, I want you to ask this of yourself. Will I submit my comfort to Jesus? Will I submit my comfort to Jesus? So imagine Peter, James, John, Andrew, they're they're getting the boat ready to sail across the Sea of Galilee, and a would-be disciple comes up to Jesus, verse 19. Let's look at what happens. A scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, now this is off to a great start. I mean, that seems really, really good. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. You know, whether it's across the Sea of Galilee or, or into Gentile territory, it doesn't matter. I'll follow you wherever you go. And to kind of intensify what's happening in this story, this man is a scribe. If you know anything about the scribes in Jesus' day, these were like the, the, the PhDs in, in religion. These are the kind of seminary-trained religious professionals. These were the professors of the Jewish seminaries. These were the guys that were paid to understand the Old Testament scriptures. These were often aligned with the Pharisees. And this scribe, he's already got his PhD equivalent in Jesus' day. He comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you. One commentator says that this would be like having to repeat high school after finding out that your school was unaccredited. I mean, he's already done his training, and now he's willing to renounce it all if only he can follow Jesus. This sounds great. I think there's plenty of, of Baptist pastors who would be ready to get this guy to walk down an aisle, sign a card, raise a hand, get baptized, join a team, become a deacon, become an elder, whatever. But Jesus says, not so fast. Look at verse 20. Look at Jesus' astounding response to this would-be disciple. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus somewhat poetically says, you want to follow me, Mr. Scribe? Are you sure? It sounds fun. Let me tell you what my life is really like. I'm 
homeless. Even the foxes and the birds have more comfort than my followers do. Now, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, you know the big picture. You know that eventually a crown awaits all of us who are faithful to follow Jesus, but not before the cross. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you, friend? If you want to follow him, you've got to get nailed to a cross first. If you want to follow him, you've got to deny yourself. If you want to follow him, kiss your comfort goodbye. Could it be that we are far too quick to affirm and encourage every would-be disciple of Jesus before asking them if they've counted the cost. In commenting on our our passage in Matthew 8, J.C. Ryle says this, nothing in fact has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace. In other words, more important than the quantity of would-be disciples that we can drum up is the quality of their discipleship. Jesus says to this scribe, are you really willing to give me your absolute allegiance? Are you willing to submit your comfort to me? Or are you only willing to follow me as long as it's easy? Dear brother, sister, friend, have you counted the cost? Following Jesus will cost you many things, including your comfort. Following Jesus is uncomfortable. I want you to just for a moment think with me about some of the different ways that following Jesus is uncomfortable. Following Jesus is uncomfortable as a single. Singles in this room, whether you're a lifelong single or a widowed single, following Jesus as a single is uncomfortable. The world screams at you, love who you want, how you want, when you want, 
And Jesus says, if you will follow me, you must die to that. You must commit to live purely and chastely. You must commit to submit your sexuality to me. You must commit to follow me in purity even if you're lonely. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Following Jesus is uncomfortable as a husband. You remember what the Apostle Paul says to husbands? Your job description, husband, is to love Christ, or love your bride how? As Christ loved who? His church. Do you remember how Jesus loved the church? He didn't complain as he went to the cross. He didn't pursue his own comfort first. He didn't demand. He denied himself for his bride. Husbands, if you're going to follow Jesus into that, it is going to be incredibly uncomfortable. There are going to be days when you are absolutely dead, dogged, tired, and you don't know that you can take another step, and yet you will deny yourself again and serve your bride. Why? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. And wives, following Jesus is uncomfortable. What does Jesus say to a wife? To submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Now, this is not doormat submission. This is not that you don't get a say or there's no discussion or, or, or he's kind of the Lord of the house. No, but it is a posture that's willing to let him lead. And ladies, if you're honest, you lead better than your husband does. And it's uncomfortable to sit back and cringe while you watch him struggle through leading. Failing and failing and failing and failing. It's uncomfortable, but you do it. Why? Because following Jesus is uncomfortable. Kids in the room. Look at me, kids. All my kids look deer in headlights. Kids. Following Jesus as a kid is uncomfortable. You think you know what's best most of the time. And yet, God has given you authority in your life to lead you and love you, and your job is to honor and obey them. And half the time, they're going to tell you to do things, probably 98% of the time, they're going to tell you to do things you don't want to do. But following Jesus is uncomfortable. Following Jesus as a mom is uncomfortable. In the 21st century... Being a faithful mom in the world's eyes is to have the prettiest pictures of your kiddos on your Instagram feed with tons of likes and everybody's smiling and happy all the time. 
That's not life on the ground for a mom that's trying to faithfully follow Jesus, is it? Life on the ground for moms, for you to faithfully follow Jesus as a mom means sacrifice, 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 often without thanks. Moms, those of you moms of young babies, they don't say thank you at all. And guess what? It doesn't change a lot until a lot, lot later. That's uncomfortable. That's hard. And it's not merely doing that without thanks. It it means doing it the way that God tells you to do it, raising them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And even when you don't see fruit, you do it anyways. Why? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. See, that's uncomfortable. That's hard. Yes, it is. Dads, Following Jesus as a dad is incredibly uncomfortable. I'm I'm convinced, dads, that you're the pace setters in your home with your family, and for you to do that, well, you're going to have to die every day, a thousand deaths, because you will have to sacrifice what you want to do for what is best for the family, and that is incredibly uncomfortable, and it will stretch you so thin, you don't feel like you can go another step, but that's what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus as a church member is uncomfortable. Most of you in this room are members of Pocosin Baptist Church. I praise God for that. Listen to me. That's uncomfortable. Just this past week, there were days that we were celebrating a wedding and grieving a funeral. To follow Jesus as a church member means to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you willing to do that? If you're going to do that, you're going to be like the Apostle Paul, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. There's going to be always something in your life that's breaking your heart over this or that sorrow or, or sin or suffering in the life of your church family. It's always going to be destroying you on the inside, and you're grieving, and yet at the same time, you're rejoicing. Sometimes you're rejoicing that God gave what you wanted to them instead of you. You say, that's uncomfortable. Yes, it is, because following Jesus is uncomfortable. As an employee, following Jesus is uncomfortable. To to work not for the praise of your boss, but for the praise of your king, to do what's right at work, even if it's not recognized. We could go on and on and on. I hope you get the point. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to submit your comfort to him. Maybe the question you might be tempted to ask is, why would anyone endure that? Why would anyone endure such discomfort? Only those who understand who Jesus is would do that. Only those who understand what Jesus is saying in verse 20 
when he calls himself the Son of Man. Notice verse 20. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of Man is uh, Jesus' favorite title for himself. When he refers to himself, he's, he all, almost always is calling himself the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man 79 times in the Gospels. But what does this title mean? D.A. Carson rightly says that Jesus uses this term because it both it conceals something about Jesus and it reveals something about Jesus. What does it reveal about Jesus? Well, what it reveals is obvious. If you call yourself a, a son of man, you're saying you're a human being, right? So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, that was a title that was often used to, just to refer to a human being. So Jesus calls himself the son of man. He's saying he's human. He's truly human. Anybody around him would see that with their own eyes. But Jesus is also concealing something about his identity when he calls himself the son of man. He's hinting at something, something that only those with faith to see would recognize. As you see in Daniel, the prophet's book of prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the prophet Daniel writes this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm a human, and that's true. I'm a homeless, traveling preacher. I'm the son of man. That's true. But Jesus is also saying with those who have ears to hear, I am the son of man, the one that Daniel talked about, the one that people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to bow before and worship in the last days. I am the one who has an everlasting kingdom. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. In a sense, Jesus uses this title to do something kind of like an episode of Undercover Boss. If you've ever seen Undercover Boss, um, you know it's, uh, it's a show about a high-level corporate executive, and what they'll do is, you know, they, they leave their cushy offices, take on some sort of disguise, and they go take an entry-level position in their company so they can see what working conditions are like and what their employees really think about them. It's kind of an interesting show. But the whole thing hinges on the boss being able to stay undercover. Once his employees or her employees know, oh, this is the CEO or the CFO or whatever, then the whole gig is up, Right? Jesus, he's kind of doing something like that. He, he wants to continue his healing ministry as he prepares for the cross, and, and he wants to conceal until the right time his true identity because Jesus has not come to this earth in this time. He is not coming to receive a crown of gold but a crown of thorns. Jesus is coming in this time for the cross. And so Jesus reveals his true identity to some, to those with faith, to believe, but he conceals from others. 
Listen to me, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that Jesus really is truly man and truly God. He is the sinless son of man, the eternal king of kings. He has an everlasting dominion, a a kingdom without end, and you believe that every sacrifice in this life is worth it. If only you will be with him in the end. Dear brother, sister, friend, are you willing, are you willing to submit your personal comfort to Jesus? I want to take a moment and address maybe someone in this room that doesn't call themselves a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus really is? Will you believe that he really is truly human and truly God and he lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life? That could be you today, dear friend, if you would surrender to this Jesus. There's a second question that we need to ask this morning, not only about our personal comfort, but our obligations. Will I submit my obligations to Jesus? Look with me at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, Matthew's probably using that word disciples loosely. Notice he says another of the disciples. This isn't one of the 12 disciples, you know, the big name disciples that we know about. It's somebody who's following Jesus to some degree, but he has limits, and his limits are about to be tested. Could be, perhaps, like someone in this room right now, someone watching online right now. You call yourself a disciple of Jesus. You're willing to follow him, but you have a point. And that point's about to be tested. And this man comes to Jesus with what seems like a pretty tame and fair request. Jesus, I want to follow you. Please let me first bury my father. Uh, many Jewish, one, one commentator writes that many Jewish people considered honoring parents the supreme commandment. This is like the number one commandment for a self-respecting Jew. And burial of one's parents was one of the most important implications of that commandment, regardless of the circumstances. In most current interpretations of biblical law, this commentator writes, only the honor due to God took precedence over the honor shown to parents. So, in other words, this is like, this is the big one. Burying your dad after he dies. I mean, you've got to honor your mother and father, and this is so important. This would be important to most of us today, incredibly even more so to any self-respecting Jew in Jesus' day. He's fulfilling his obligations as a son. Let me bury my father. This seems totally reasonable. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Just read that again and let that sink in, what Jesus is saying. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. As I studied this passage last week, I was helping some of our church members plan a funeral for their father. I can't imagine saying something like this to a family grieving the loss of a dad. This seems and feels incredibly harsh. What's going on? There's a bunch of different views on this passage and what's happening here. Let, let me give you three main views of what's happening in this verse. Some say that the man's father was probably still alive. Okay, so when he says, let me first go bury my father, the, the man's not dead yet. Here's why. Um, the Jews didn't practice embalming, so if somebody dies, they would be buried that day. So, you know, we sometimes await days, sometimes even weeks before we bury a body. That was not the case in uh, Jesus' day. Usually the burial would be that day. Think of Jesus' burial, right? Died on the cross and put in the tomb that evening, right? That was pretty standard fare for the Jews in Jesus' day. Besides, if this guy's dad had recently died, he would probably be literally in the burial procession, heading to his gravesite, he probably wouldn't be talking to Jesus. So some people suggest, and this is well documented, that, that let me first bury my father is kind of a figure of speech. And it basically means, let me take care of my dad until he dies. If that view's correct, what this man is asking, he, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you but first, I need to be a good son and take care of my dad. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's not. Maybe I want the inheritance first. Maybe not. But I just need more time. That's one interpretation. Another view says that perhaps his father had died and already was buried, but the burial wasn't considered complete until uh, the 30-day mourning period was complete. So they'd bury the body, and then there'd be 30 days of mourning, and at the conclusion, then it's kind of finished. And so this man has, has buried his father. He's already dead, but he wants more time to mourn and kind of deal with his loss and go through the tradition, his obligations as a son to care for and honor his father. This man, again, asking, if, it's, if that's the correct view, he's asking for more time. Just a few more days or weeks, Jesus, and then I'll follow you. Still others say that this refers to a custom called reburial. Uh, the eldest son would return to the tomb a year after his father's death to rebury his father by, by rearranging the bare bones in a container and sliding them into a slot in the wall of the tomb. I know that's weird, but we do a lot, a lot of weird stuff with the deceased after they pass. That's what a common thing in Jesus' day. If that view is correct, this man, again, he's, he's asking for more time. You know, dad's died. I got to be back to do the reburial, and then I'll follow you. Now, regardless of which view is correct here, two things are clear. Number one, if the first man in our story was 
too quick to make promises to Jesus. This man is too slow to perform his promises. The, the first man perhaps was naive. The second man is dragging his feet. Which one of those are you more likely to be? The second truth that's evident, regardless of which view is correct, whether the man is dead or not, whether he's already been buried or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus demands that you submit every obligation in your life to him. Think about what he's doing. The most important obligation in this man's life, Jesus says, that must be submitted to me. So think of all your obligations, Christian, all your obligations, friends. You're a mother, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're an employee, you're a grandfather. You could go on and on. Whatever your obligations are, Jesus says, take the biggest one and everything underneath it and submit all of it to me. There is nothing that you must do that is more important than following me. That's what Jesus is saying in this story. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, of course, the physical, physically dead can't do anything. So probably what Jesus is saying is, is the spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead care about the things of this world. You follow me, he says. So let me ask you, Christian, are you willing to submit your obligations to Jesus. It's astounding sometimes how easy, even in my own life as a follower of Jesus, and perhaps for many of you, it is when your obligations and your discipleship come in conflict, often your obligations win. Has that ever happened for you? Think about some of the obligations that some of you might have this morning. Maybe some of you, just like this man, have aging parents. You have an obligation to care for them. But you must submit that obligation to Jesus. So if your parents ask you to choose between following Jesus and serving them, who do you choose? You choose Jesus. You say, well, that's never going to happen. Well, think about our brothers and sisters from Muslim backgrounds. In a big chunk of the world, when someone from a Muslim background comes to Christ, they are, in effect, turning their back on their family for the rest of their lives. And don't you think there's sometimes that, that doubt in their minds that says, well, I, I've got to take care of mom and dad. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Some of you have obligations to your children. You have an obligation to love them. You have an obligation to care for them, to provide for them. Listen to me, Christian. You must submit that obligation to King Jesus. When there's an apparent conflict between loving, caring for your children and following Jesus, Jesus must win. You cannot disobey Jesus to love your kids. 
you're a teenage son or a daughter or adult son or daughter, says, if you really love me, you will affirm me in this way. And Jesus says, no, you, are, you must choose who will you submit to. Christian, you must submit to Jesus. So many Christians have caved to cultural pressure related to issues of, of sex and gender, but the primary thing that caused all the dominoes to fall was their son or their daughter said, you must affirm me in this way. And the parents said, I've got a choice. Follow Jesus or love them. I'm going to choose them. Jesus says, no, follow me. Are you willing to make that choice, Christian? If you have a job, you have an obligation to honor your employer, you must submit that obligation to Jesus. Earlier this month, five players of the Tampa, Ray, Tampa Bay Rays Major League Baseball team were in hot water because they refused to wear a patch that the team added to its uniforms to celebrate Pride Month. One of the spokespersons for the players said this, it's a hard decision because ultimately we all said what we want is them, those in the LGBTQ community, to know that all are welcome and loved here. But when we put this symbol on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me, this man says, as a heterosexual male, to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage. It's no different. And these players were, if we can use the term, crucified on social media for taking such a stand. But they said, when there's a conflict between my obligations as an employee and my obligations to Jesus, Jesus will win. Some of you are facing this pressure in your jobs right now. And there's going to be that temptation. Cave just a little bit, just a little bit. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Can I just encourage you, Christian, as we prepare to celebrate the freedoms that we do have in our country, we might feel like there's a, there's a, a, a dark cloud of oppression hanging over those of us who cling to God's word as followers of Jesus, but really this isn't anything new. In the book of Acts, the earliest days of the church, the religious leaders in Jerusalem told the apostles they had an obligation to stop talking about Jesus. When Peter and John refused, they were arrested. And Acts chapter 5 says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The cost for following Jesus, Christian, is absolute allegiance. Absolute. There is no comfort 
that must not be submitted to him. There is no obligation that takes precedence over him. Now, before we conclude, I want to address the Christians in this room who may be prone to despair in this moment, thinking about this call to radical discipleship. Maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, have I really submitted my comfort to Jesus? All of it? If I haven't, am I really even a Christian? Have I really submitted my obligations to Jesus? All of them? If I haven't, am I really a Christian? That's where I find verse 23 so helpful. Look at verse 23 in your Bibles. After these two encounters with these two men, the text says, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, if you'll be back with us next week, you'll see just what happens when they follow him into that boat. A storm brews over the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, exhausted from his labors, teaching and healing and ministering to people, Jesus is wiped out. He's asleep, fast asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm. And the disciples, these men who have left behind their comfort and submitted their obligations to follow Jesus are there in the boat with a man who can touch a leper and turn him clean. A a man who can touch someone and bring the dead to life. Someone who has healed an entire town of sick and demon-possessed people and they see some clouds and some lightning and some rain and some waves and they freak out and they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Do these look like guys who have left their comfort and their obligations behind to follow Jesus? Jesus says they do. Why? Not because their faith is perfect, not because they don't doubt, not because they don't struggle, not because there aren't moments when their comfort feels a little bit too important, but because even in those moments, they go to him. So Christian, go to him. Would you pray with me?